Hello, good evening, and welcome. I'm Simon Westwood. And I'm Gemma Files, and this is, of course, No Darkness, no darkness but, but Ours. Christmas uh, edition. Christmas edition to the ghost <laughs> stories for Christmas. Christmas special. Yes. Exactly. Yes. This um, is what we're going to decided to do um we've got uh, obviously last our last episode was the first part of our queer horror podcast yes. and that will continue next week with the second part of it but because it's christmas um i have always loved that uh christmas ghost story tradition christmas horror story tradition whatever you want to call it and i've always wanted to actually have you know do actually i always wanted to do things about you know doing a real kind of ghost story on christmas eve uh to an adoring audience of i don't know five people yeah um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um you know it's 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 of course funny because uh mr james all his ghost stories were ghost stories for christmas even when they weren't yeah. christmas but uh then since then there's been uh, a certain tradition of um ghost stories set at christmas so, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, mine doesn't have a Christmas setting, but I believe this does yours. Mine does. Yes, it is set at Yule, which Yol. was yes, exactly, which was the festival which later became Christmas. Ah, of course. Okay, so um, without further ado, then we'll begin with Gemma's story, Yol. Yes. And Take it away if you want to say anything else before you start or just launch into it. Uh, no, I'm, I'm just going to launch into it. Yol, you've asked me how it came about that my family were eventually converted to the new faith of Christianity. Having hitherto been proud farmers who went Viking at their Jarl's command and only worshipped the Norse gods, Odin, Thor, Freyr, and Freya in particular. This is that story. At the time, we lived on a farm near Kjartenholt on the peninsula of Snefeldsnes, where many ghostly doings have been recorded in various sagas. Similar things had, of course, happened near us as well. Tales my father and uncles often took great glee in the telling of. How a whale beached itself once on the sands near where my mother and I gathered gulls' eggs, for example, after which a fight broke out between two groups of men who assembled to flinge the whale, and several men were killed. One lived long enough after his leg was cut off to curse the man who dealt him that blow, who happened to be my youngest uncle, Thorl Fredhair. That night, after a great deal of drinking and celebration, Thorolf wandered away, and a week later he was found on those same sands where the man who cursed him's blood had fallen, black from head to toe and with all his bones broken. Nor did the curse end there, for from that day forth, my uncle Thorolf haunted our homestead, wandering over the hills and causing mischief, as if he and we had never been related by blood. Eventually, my father was forced to dig Thorolf up and bury him again under a cairn of rune stones, which at least kept him from walking, though the land around his cairn became useless as pasture, since any sheep who slept over his grave would inevitably be found dead in the morning. Now one year, as the festival of Yol approached, we heard much about how Snorri the priest had apparently become Christian and was proclaiming that all of Snefelsnes should become Christian likewise. At one time, Snorri and Arnko of Holifel had striven together, sharing the title of Jarl, but Snorri had since killed Arnko and become sole possessor of the Jarlhold, to which my family was sworn. 
So before the festival itself, my father and his brothers met to discuss whether or not they too should become Christians, if Snorri required it of them. This was an idea to which my eldest young uncle, Gerald, um, objected strenuously. I do not wish to insult our gods, he said, who are both powerful and alive on behalf of a god who is surely some sort of draug, given he is said to be a dead man, slain like a thief, who somehow came back to life, yet remains nailed to a cross made from wood. Not to mention how he has since caused the death of many, not through his own strength like Thor or Odin, but by slyly whispering in the ears of Frankian or English monks, who then tell their kings who he wants them to kill in his name. Our priests give advice, also when asked, my father said, as do our seers, to which my uncle answered, yes, but because they well know the thread of our fate is already spun, they do not expect us to do anything except by our own decision. Whatever we choose, we will arrive at the same end soon enough. I have heard this Christ is the son of a greater God still, my mother put in, which is likely enough. Indeed, at this time of year, he is worshipped mainly as the baby he once was, born on Yoltide, Christ's mass, they call it. Yet I have also heard he is not only that God's son, but the God himself somehow, and that his mother was a virgin both when she conceived him and after his birth, which is an obviously ridiculous idea. There was more talk after this, but I was a child and had already drunk much mead. So I do not recall exactly when it was that I felt, fell asleep, only that I woke later on in the very dead of night. All about me, my elders were likewise deeply aslumber, some of them naked and rolled in furs, having given themselves over to revelry. My little brothers and elder sister were curled around me in a pile, snoring. It was cold outside, the snow having begun to fall when our meal first commenced but inside it was warm and stinking, it was familiar, it was home. Slowly, however, I saw something take shape outside, a blue-white half-moon of light that wavered in the air and turned the falling snow to sparks around it, bright sparks to each side and gray sparks behind, almost black, as if it were not snow that fell, but ash. At first, I thought it was a corpse candle, of the sort that sometimes form near the summer solstice and can be followed by those brave enough, leading them to buried treasure. Then I thought perhaps it might be a weird moon instead, a sign of deaths to follow, for my uncle Gerard had told me once how he saw one, one enter into the great fire hall at Frodeswater, um, circling backwards and Wittershins around the tables before going back out again, only to return every night thereafter until all the village's men went out to fish and never returned except as dripping ghosts. And eventually the matter was only settled once the dead men were given a door doom which bore, that barred them from ever returning. But this was not either of those things as it happens. This was like nothing I had ever seen before or since. Bright and black and cold, the light outside came closer still, eddying through the door. It cast itself upon the earthen floor the tables and furs, the faces of my kin. I saw them frown and grimace under its touch. Here and there I watched eyes open and narrow, seeking for the source. And then the light, which had been like a half moon, blinked likewise, opening itself further the way a lid does, to disclose something entirely else that had all the time lain behind it. Of Draugr, we say, they are blue-skinned, 
dark and awful. This child, this baby, was much the same, though also red in places, red dripping from the cord looped around its waist to dangle slack between its equal slack legs, floating above where the fire coals smoldered, red, pink, and crusted white across its face, bearing a call such as our seers and those gods chosen are often born with. Its pudgy hands crossed at its breast's bone, tiny fingers curled, its eyes shut yet glowing, the whole of it glowing, brighter and brighter, shedding molten gold like heavy rain. My father jumped up, grabbing for his sword. My uncle Gerard drew his hand axe and struck hard at this dreadful thing, cleaving it straight through the skull. For a moment, the split face opens its, opened its eyes, looking straight at me, or seemed to. I saw those lids lift beneath the call, the eyes themselves, gold as well, while the half-brain thus exposed flared like the sun, just risen as it does, it does as it breaks horizon. I saw, I heard my uncle Gerard scream, dropping the axe, which smoked as though pulled forth from a forge. I saw his strong hand curl and melt together, instantly crippled, scar forming to scar. And when my father struck to avenge him, sword spearing in through that blazing creature's soft stomach, he roared and let it, let it go as soon as the heat touched him, for which he took almost no harm beyond a blister. And then we watched his sword melt from whatever ran through this thing's guts like blood, that fire, that power, right in front of us, not hot enough to brand and make and kill. There, real, undeniable, in a way no thunder of Thor's distant hammer could ever be. I heard a voice in my head then, gold as well, and clarion, a blown battle horn. Behind the floating child I saw wings beating, the shadow of a cross suggesting him grown to full strength, arms spread to accept iron nails, a crown of bloody thorns. The cross planted deep in a mountain of skulls and its shadow spilling out over the whole world. See now, by the strength of my father and in his secret unspeakable name, I am born from death again and again, this voice seemed to tell me, to tell us all. A plant born from no seed, a seed needing no soil, no sun, no tending. Thus you cannot defeat me, for nothing that lives can destroy what I am. Your gods must die, as all do, but I do not. I cannot. I am a marvel, a fearful thing. Worship me. Fear me. Gloria in excelsis Deo, male, Gloria. I heard my mother weeping then, and my sisters and brothers too in understanding, in shame and joy and fear. And when Yol broke the morning after, we lit our fires as always, gathered boughs of pine and plaited them in wreaths, painted our faces with blood and crushed berries. And when we had drunk enough to risk it, to dare to, we threw the images of our gods upon the pyre and let them burn to ash. And the next week we went up to Holyfell and pledged ourselves to, to Snorri the priest once more, this time as Christians. And nothing happened. We still went Viking, we still killed, still drank, still took thralls, still sold them as slaves and sired children on them. We still shed blood, this time in Jesus the Christ's name. Sometimes we slew each other and, played, and paid blood guilt for it. Sometimes we knelt and prayed, did penance, were forgiven. Once we yearned for Valhalla and some still did, though out loud they called it heaven. But we never saw that child again, at least. And for that, 
I'm thankful. And that's it. Oh, it's, a, heart, it's a heartwarming Christmas tale. It is. Um, and uh, and I drew a, a picture. Jeez. Well, quite. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that's really cool. That's excellent. Um, Thank you. And a hard act to follow, but I'll do my best. Please. Um, so this um, is something I've started doing over the last year or two, which is to write sort of a short story in verse form, um, which I find is quite a nice way to kind of um, uh, sometimes have that easy way to tackle ideas I might have struggled to craft into prose. Um, anyway, I, I quite like doing it, so this is one I've done. It's called Charm. It's not set at, it's not set at Christmas, but it's a ghost story nonetheless. It's called Jarman's Ghost. I knew Phil Jarman from school. A fellow outcast and popular and thin, while I was unpopular and fat. A perfect fit, a match made, well, somewhere, anyway. Outcasts together, we shared what we had. I showed or lent him horror videos, dog-eared paperbacks from New English Library, the rats, the crabs, the slugs, mythical fiends from hell, real ones with knives or chainsaws. And Jarman showed me his ghost. He lived with his father, a drunk, in a big dilapidated house that had once been fine, but a sprawling overgrown garden where the grass lay in tangled rolls like wire in no man's land. At the garden's end, by the rusted fence that screened it from the adjoining meadow and copse, half hidden in the shade of the pale silver birches, stood a wooden shed, half green with moss. This was Jarman's den, his secret place. And here he showed me things, many of which I would like to forget. There were, aptly enough, I suppose, given his name, jars filling the shelves on the walls. Their murky contents included the remains of animals, fish and birds. Some were in alcohol, others in water. I tried to believe they'd all been dead when he'd found them, that he hadn't trapped the shrews and mice, the rabbit or the guinea pig in some escapeless, sheer-sided jar, then slowly poured the water in and watched them drown. Tried. But even then, I don't think I ever really succeeded. Why did I spend time with him? I was at length as afraid of him as of any playground bully. Perhaps that was why. Perhaps because he was all I had, closest to a friend. I was too young to realize then it can be better to be alone. Then one day, he showed me his ghost. This is special. He told me, a secret, our secret. You can't tell anyone or they'll take it away. And they won't let us be friends anymore. And I was so afraid of being alone, I promised to keep silent. Until now, I have. There was another jar, not kept on a shelf, 
but in a crate in a corner of the shed. A jar wrapped in sacking in a crate covered over with it. It was stoppered with symbols carved on the cork, the joins sealed with thick black candle wax. At first it looked empty, till Jarman held it up and whispered, look, began to tap the glass. Inside the jar began a glow, a faint vaporous shimmer of pale lambent light, about the size, I thought, of a small animal, a rat, or a guinea pig, say. But it wasn't any animal. Sometimes the light took on the shape of a tiny homunculoid man, writhing and struggling, and then, I don't like to think of this, even now, it became a face, a tormented, screaming face, full of agony and terror, a dreadful plea in the smoky eyes that said extinction was preferable to an existence like this. It's a ghost, said Jarman. My grandpa caught it to bring us luck. I looked around that shed, that garden, that decaying house with that drunken, brutish dad inside his mother had left many years ago, and wondered what kind of luck it had been supposed to bring. When? Jarman grinned and cooed over it as the afternoon wore on and dusk came, until the only light in the shed was the ghost light from the jar, lighting his leer as he cupped and cradled, rocked and tapped, shook and, shook and gloated over the ghost, his ghost. Once, once only, I said that he should break the glass, set the poor spirit free, and he turned on me in fury, spitting venom, scalding me with words like boiling whips full of sneering and contempt. Oh, I was the weaker party in that twisted friendship. I knew it and despised myself, I think, even then. Still do now. He punched my arm, the big muscle of it, leaving it dead for half an hour. I was too afraid to say anything again. How things might have gone on, I don't know. It was beginning to dawn on me that Jarman was no refuge from the cruelties I'd so hated at school. He hated them solely because they were directed at him, and would gladly have participated otherwise. But I was afraid to break free, afraid to be alone, afraid of Jarman's wrath. Kind fate took a hand in the end. One night, driving home from somewhere I never learned where, Jarman's father, drunk behind the wheel, slewed off the road, head first into a tree. Jarman was in the back. There was a fire. The caskets at the almost unattended funeral closed throughout, then wheeled through the crematorium doors to complete the burning. Some weeks later, I ventured to the house, which looked more decayed than ever as it loomed a black silhouette against the grey November sky, and made my way into the tangled garden at the back. The shed door was locked, but for once I had courage, and smashed the rotten wood with a stone till the lock fell away. I ignored the jars on the shelves, 
with their awful, pathetic contents. I sometimes wish I'd burned the shed, given those poor creatures some kind of funeral rite. But I wasn't there for them. I uncovered the crate, withdrew the wrapped jar, carried it outside. At first it looked empty, and I almost believed I had imagined the whole thing. But then I tapped the glass, and the light appeared. It became that screaming face. There was a moment where I almost kept it. I understood in my loneliness, Jarman, then. Without friends or affection, hounded and preyed upon, I understood the allure of having power over another life, another soul. Had I kept it, might it have brought me the luck it was first intended to? I don't know, or care, really. My life since then hasn't been a bad one. There have been disappointments, yes, but good things too. And I am not alone. Maybe that's my luck. Who knows, maybe that luck was granted me when I flung the jar to the ground, broke it with the stone, shattered shards of glittering glass strewn across the lawn. The light seemed to gutter out, but then I saw it rise, flickering up into the sky, winging its way into the dusk, before at last it disappeared. I was alone then, in the grey garden, the snarling, tangled grasses writhed beneath an angry wind. I ran then quickly, not looking back, lest Jarman's own ghost, bitter, angry, vengeful, lingered in that place and never returned. Yes! <laughs> that's that. <laughs> well, you liked mine and I liked yours. Oh, there we go. That's, that's probably yeah. a good that's probably a good thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, that was great, Gemma. <laughs> no, seriously, that was, I really, really like that. Thank you. Yeah, that was. That's. I think that's a nice little, a nice little double. Slightly, slightly different. Slightly not quite. Perhaps what people would usually expect from Christmas ghost stories. But I think between us, we've probably creep. We've hopefully creeped the hell out of all of you folks uh, listening this evening. Um, <laughs> we just want to scare the hell out of you. <laughs> we scare because we care. <laughs> yes, like David S. Pumpkins. Okay. So right. We will be back, um, as I say, next week with the next part of our Queer Horror podcast. Um, yep. Until then, um, obviously, Merry Christmas, Gemma, uh, to you and your family. Merry um, Christmas. Merry <laughs> Christmas, Simon, and to, to you and Kate and everybody yeah, in your many, life. Yes, and Merry Christmas to all you listeners, or Happy Yule, or Yule, um, indeed, or uh, whatever, or Hanukkah, or whatever, whatever holiday you may celebrate. Um, have, a, have a wonderful time, and spend time with those you love and enjoy yourselves in whatever fashion exactly. appeals to you. Yes. Merry Christmas. Exactly. <laughs> so until next time, I have been Simon Bestwick. And I have been Gemma Files. And this, of course, has been 
No darkness, no darkness but ours. But ours.